Rescued is a podcast of conversations with rescuers and those who've been rescued. It's about the lessons we learn about ourselves, the places we go and why, without judgment, to help us have better adventures, manage risk and deal with the unexpected. The following episode touches on subjects such as trauma, mental health and suicide. So please take a sec and consider who's listening, and that includes you. And remember, if you need to chat things through, you can always call Lifeline on 131114 or visit beyondblue.org.au. In 2022, over 3.7 million people from Australia and overseas visited the Blue Mountains, the most visited national park in New South Wales. They're drawn to the dramatic clifftop views, deep valleys and diverse habitats that stretch over the one million hectares of this World Heritage Sandstone Plateau. A landscape that is constantly being carved by water and reveals itself through waterfalls and canyons. Today, I have the honour of welcoming back to the podcast, Matthew Bryan, who in the last episode shared his powerful story of life within his 17-year policing career, most of that within police rescue in the Blue Mountains, and now his challenging journey outside, where he's advocating for better mental health outcomes for emergency services first responders. If you haven't listened to that episode, I strongly recommend you do that first. So pop out and then return back here. In this episode, Matt's going to take us inside Empress Canyon, the most popular of the Blue Mountains canyons, during a regular day at work when he found himself moving from rescuer to needing rescue. Matt, welcome back to Rescued Podcast. Thanks very much for having me back on. It's so good to have you here. Thank you again. In the first episode, you talked about your early days as a kid, you know, growing up and finding the bush and falling in love with wild places like that. Why don't you jump forward a little bit and talk to us about how you discovered canyoning and how you first got into that? Yeah, it's pretty hard to avoid it, I guess, living in the Blue Mountains, Uh, but it started to grow as an extension from bushwalking natural progression uh, to the uh, the vertical world. And that's how I really started looking into it. And obviously, there's a lot of that sort of activity going on around us. And as I, I think I mentioned last time, watching some of the other police rescue operators at work going out and doing these sort of activities, and it, it just sort of naturally caught my attention. Because you were a general duties police officer at the time, weren't you, when you first came to the Blue Mountains? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, started off in general duties and progressed through to becoming a rescue operator, which was a really good fit for uh, where I wanted to go. But yeah, the canyoning side of things actually really was, I guess, what drew me in really intensely into that line of work. And I still look back at those days fondly because they're parts of the world that not many people get to see and they take a bit of effort and a bit of a bit of know-how, but you can certainly go and enjoy something that not, not a lot of people get to see. So how would you describe what a canyon is because, you know, a lot of people might think, oh, the Grand Canyon in in the States, it's this big, vast valley, but ours are really different. What does it look like? What do they sound like? And what do you see inside a canyon? Yeah, I've actually had to do this officially in reports, you know, investigation reports and that as well for, uh, for coronial matters where you've actually got to try and explain the environment that you're in or that that person was in to a court or to a to a coroner uh, who would have zero exposure to that physically, but you've actually got to try and explain it. So it's not easy. I usually end up talking about it being a slot through a rock 
uh, and it's a waterfall that goes over the edge of a cliff, typically. Then you talk about the large catchment areas that actually make that over many years and and that natural water flow, and then it just carves that slot deeper and deeper and deeper through that cliff line. And then, then you end up with these sort of majestic little waterways that work their way down through a, a deep slot in the rock. Yeah, they're quite hard to explain. When you say slot, like how wide are we talking here? Yeah, so some of them are, you know, quite constricted and quite narrow and quite deep. Others certainly are more broad. You're quite well aware of how deep you are in in Mother Earth when you look up from some of them because there's a long way of a very narrow slot of rock above you. And they're not places to underestimate either, I think, because of that place that you're in is actually not really easy to get in and out of. And when things go wrong, that's a challenge for everybody, not just you. There's certainly a place that you can go and enjoy and the picturesque nature of them and Mm. just being in somewhere like that, it's just so foreign to what's, you know, maybe even two or three kilometres away from you, there's a whole bunch of coffee shops and you can be in this whole other world. I guess that's what, you know, people love about them. Yeah. So what do they look like inside? Like what colours and and what do they sound like? Yeah, well, they, they can be quiet and then they can be really loud, depends where you are. So the water flow is usually the determining factor of that, other than a few birds that you might hear on the outside or a bit of wind. But the colours that I remember actually are those beautiful greens and that bit of sun sun bursting through. Yeah, it's etched into my mind, I think, some of those greens, are particularly up in Colostral and places like that. Yeah, it's like um, a green filter gets yeah. put over, you know, when you get a bit of light coming through. Because you, you mentioned that when you look up and you realise how far down you are. Yeah, it's amazing how the water can just carve it so deep. Yeah, but you, some days you get that beautiful sunlight uh, bursting through the, uh, just that little bit of mist that's often in there. And yeah, they look gorgeous. Can you remember your first canyon in the Blue Mountains? Oh, I do. Actually, I do, and it was Empress. Um, I started canyoning with another general duties guy. Actually, it wasn't a rescue operator that took me out. Yeah, he was a, an avid rock climber that he, he did canyoning on the side sort of thing, and he uh, he wanted to take me out. And we actually did Empress in uh, – not in wetsuits. That's what I do remember. Uh, it was the, it was old school. It was uh, yeah, wool we'll jumpers under a bit of a Gore-Tex, and uh, off we went. And uh, he promised me it would only be short. We wouldn't be cold for too long, and and uh, and away we went. Yeah, those were the days. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't do it that way anymore. But that was the f- place it started for me. Actually, yeah, Empress in a uh, in a woolen jumper. So I guess that's another thing to help us all understand what this environment's like. So, you know, they're dark mm. and they're also cold, aren't they? Yeah, we haven't talked about temperature. Yeah. <laughs> that's the big factor, isn't it? Yeah, they're so cold up in the Blue Mountains anyway. And it's usually dark, so it doesn't warm up. And yeah, they they're really cold. You need to, you know, have the right gear for that, like wetsuits. You can get in uh, into trouble pretty quickly if your uh, temperature gets too low. So yeah, they're, they're a challenging environment to work in uh, and play in. Uh, you just got to know what you're doing. Yeah. So what are some of the things that, you know, some of the risks, but apart from all the usual things you think about in bushwalking, what are some of the things that we have to think about with canyoning? Yeah, well, because you're introducing usually uh, a vertical element. So, you know, essentially the, they're a canyon because the water's flowing down through something. So you've either got fairly decent scramble downs, water jump-ins or abseiling. So there's usually that element to it. So whenever you introduce heights, you introduce that 
that risk of falling and then there's there's the primary issue but the other the other factor that always plagues canyons is they're dark and wet Mm. and rocks when they're dark and wet are slippery so everything's slippery (laughs) you know you're not just walking on slippery wet rocks you're actually in water and sometimes it's that deep you're actually swimming yeah and doing that with all the gear that you actually need to get through the canyon is is a challenge as well from a weight point of view and obviously some of it needs to stay dry you've got to factor that in as well it takes you into a different world a magical place yeah, yeah, absolutely. And some of them are so different, you know, some uh, some of the more open waterfall type canyons out in Kananga are very different to the, the deep slot rock canyons. They've still got beautiful views, it's just a different view. Massive thanks for the support from the team at Paddy Pallon, who since 1930 have been leaders in travel and outdoor adventure. In fact, did you know that Paddy himself, a member of the Sydney Bushwalkers Club, was a volunteer in the original search and rescue arm of the Federation of Bushwalking Clubs in New South Wales? Hmm, nice one, Paddy. Can you remember the day that we're going to look at how the morning started or how the shift started for you? I do remember there was some really isolated but quite severe storm cells come through. So for me, it would have just been another, any old day. Uh, And if I remember rightly, I think I was actually heading home after finishing up in the late afternoon. So um, the reason I remember the storm activity is because when the job came in, I thought to myself, oh, wow, like there has been some hectic rainfall up here in patches and knowing what that can do in those canyon environments. And uh, straight away that set alarm bells off because, you know, you, you get jobs in canyons from time to time and they're usually more challenging than routine remote area jobs just because of the environment. But this particular day I do remember straight away thinking, wow, this is going to be a big job because of the the rain that we'd had. And uh, sure enough, it was. And was that unplanned, like unforecast rain? Was it one of those sort of random storm cells that came through unforecast? Yeah, look, I think it was a possibility, but, you know, like the mountains where there can be, like it's an afternoon of possible storms can mean sunny or it can mean mean what we got. It was definitely pretty full-on rainfall, like like isolated storm activity with some heavy downpour sections. And that's, that's usually something that canyoners are pretty switched on to, isn't it? Yeah, that's one of those things that you've really got to be aware of in that environment is that risk of um, changing water conditions. So that's uh, because the way that they've formed and the, and the catchments that they're usually part of, that water fluctuation can happen pretty quickly and pretty uh, drastically in, in those environments. That's exactly why canyoners are usually quite well attuned to what the weather forecast is going to be for their activity. When the job came in... Were you thinking back to past jobs you'd done in Empress? Because had, had you done other other rescues and other jobs within Empress before? The sort of more minor injury jobs that happen in, in a lot of places, no doubt done a few of those down the bottom end there with either ill-prepared people, but not, certainly nothing of this nature. But the, the thing with Empress, I guess, for me was I, I used to use it as a training run. Like it was, it was one of those canyons that I'd do with friends as a time trial even, you know, just to see how quick we could get through and back to where we started from as a bit of a hoot. And knowing the volume of traffic that gets through there and, you know, that was certainly on my mind as well, thinking, wow, you know, if there's a job going on in there, how many people are actually in, in there? Because some of those groups can be pretty big and and they're not all commercial groups with the sort of structure that comes with that. Some of the private groups that decide to go in there too were pretty big at times and uh, that was certainly on my mind that day. 
Because mm. Empress Kitty is like most visited canyon in the Blue Mountains. It's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people go through all the time and there's never never a problem. Yeah, and that's right. Back in those days weren't a lot of incidents, I guess, for the amount of people that go through there. Yeah, nonetheless, it's still a canyon and, you know, to get a, to get an, a, a job like that after that weather pattern that I knew had passed over the area was a pretty big concern. Mm. So you're driving to the um, access point. Did you access it as per normal or what were some of the things going through you and um, you were there with colleagues at the time? Were you, what was going on? So for those sort of jobs, you know, typically a lot of rescue jobs are just done with two rescue operators. For, but for those type of jobs, they're never just two people because, you know, vertical works usually a minimum of three plus people required as a first sort of wave turnout and those sort of canyon type jobs are usually more than that as well because of the logistics of equipment and whatever the task at hand is on top of that and then you add the medical element with the ambulance officers on top of that again so they're not a sort of standard call out I guess and it's very often driven by the uh, the nature of the job but that one I think we ended up having three operators turn up there with the first arriving ambulance so yeah myself and two other operators and my, I think there was one scat paramedic and a and a normally a road ambulance crew as well. So to give you an idea of what first turned up, the time criticality of that job as well was evident right from the very start. So it's not one of those jobs where you can sort of lob up and take your time planning and doing all of that sort of thing. It's it's pretty much game on from when you get there. Not not saying you don't take your precautions, plan your actions and, and get your gear ready and take what you need, but it's not a job you can take in slow order and wait for um, all of the cavalry to arrive before you initiate it just because of that risk of it could be getting worse every second and we need to do what we need to do straight away. So that's that's how those type of jobs are approached. What did you know of the job as, as you approached? Yeah, that, that was very, very little. All we knew at the time at the top was that there were people reported as being trapped in the canyon and there wasn't a lot more information that I remember coming in from that and that caused us some problems because uh, as many of your canyoning listeners would know, to go towards the exit or to the entrance is not usually the same route and that's the decision we had to make straight away was we don't actually know what's going on here. All we know is people are unaccounted for or, or you know, there's an alarm being raised and, and it certainly wasn't they're all out of the canyon uh, type of a message. So we, we had to presume that there were people still stuck in the canyon. So that's exactly how we approached it. Myself and one other operator, Fitzy, geared up to go straight in, that entry point there near Lillian's Bridge for the people that know it. Uh, and then we sent the ambulance officer and one of our other rescue operators down the bottom to the exit point. Uh, the bottom waterfall there so um, they could actually if there was something they could do down there then they'd be in a position to assist and and certainly in a in a flooded canyon environment you're not going to be really doing too much advanced medical work in that environment we were figuring that was all going to happen down the bottom hence the ambulance officer was probably going to be most useful down there when you say the bottom for people who aren't familiar with empress that's a significant sort of 30 meter drop isn't it I guess some canyons finish at the very bottom of the overall cliff line, whereas Empress sort of finishes partway through the overall cliff line. But it's, uh, yeah, it does finish up with a, about a 30 metre odd drop of a waterfall going into a pool where it intersects the walking track out. So, yeah, the end of the canyon essentially is a, is a 30 metre waterfall. And that means that your, your colleagues are a long way from wherever you are with still inside the canyon, hey? And it's probably something that I've had to point out to some people before is uh, that you can't do canyons backward 
generally. Because I've, I've had people ask me, why didn't you just start and work your way backwards like you would with a bushwalk, I guess, if you knew they were heading a particular direction. Then, well, that's impossible up a 30-metre waterfall because <laughs> um, uh, I don't even think the spiders can do that one. So um, the tricky part of that job was, yeah, that's right, it's a one-way trip. Um, so we sent people to the end and then we started working our way in from from that one-way start point. And what did you see when you first got, got in at, at the bridge? We, said, we committed to it wondering, I guess, whether the people were already going to be out. And that was the thing that was always in our mind was we didn't know. We just did not know any information other than they, they could have still been in there. So when we got the Lillian's Bridge, you were looking down over that edge there. The water level in there was just evidently way higher than I'd ever seen it. And usually you can look down into, you know, a bit above ankle height water that's reasonably wide uh, you know good good handful of meters wide down there so and a, and a nice I, I think it's sort of like a sandy sort of base it's quite easy going in that little section and and uh but looking down there this time around it was not that at all it was not clear water it was it was deep it was fast and you could hear the thundering water that you normally probably couldn't even really hear at that point you could hear it roaring from further down in the canyon so we knew it was going to be a wild ride that's for sure mm. And, uh, yeah, so uh, committing from that point, I think we did go in off an 11 mil fixed rope at that point just in case we had to get straight back out of there um, as a bit of a backup plan to get ourselves out. But, uh, you know, the hard part was not knowing any information. All we could really keep doing at that time was just keep keep going forward. And radio communications and things like that are problematic in those environments. There was a big team effort overall and there were a lot of people arriving that we wouldn't have had any idea about. Uh, yeah, going forward, I remember, you know, having done that canyon, I don't know how many times I would have done it. I might have done it, you know, 20, 30 times overall in the years that I was up there and, you know, quite familiar with it, but it was really different on this day. And I think I'd spoken to some of the some of the more avid rock climbers and, and people in the community that I know were quite extreme people. I know some of them would go and test their boundaries in those type of environments in water levels that would not otherwise be advised, but... Uh, I certainly hadn't done that canyon in in elevated water, uh, other, other than maybe just you know slightly higher than normal, but certainly not in flood. And I would have called this definitely in flood. I'm curious as what is going through your mind at that time when you're about to make that decision of commitment. When you're hearing the water, you know it doesn't look like it normally does. You know it has a, a dark colour, but you think there's a, there's a job to do. There's people who could be in here. Yeah. The the problem at that point is all of that stuff's going through your head is, are there people just out of my sight that are in desperate need of help? And looking at the height of the water, that could have been like it was really evidently could have been the case. And you have no real option other than to plow forward if it's at all possible in that in that sort of scenario. So, and this is where I guess you end up pushing some of the boundaries that you would always advise someone else that you wouldn't do uh, when you've got a potentially savable life. It always extends the parameters of, of how far you'll push those boundaries. And this one was really much in that basket where we had to presume that there were people just around the corner that needed help and mm. that's why we were there. So it does certainly make you assess your situation a little differently to what you would do if you were there socially, <laughs> mm. if uh, if I would call it that sort of comparison. But, yeah, it was very much in our minds. We we 
talked a bit on the way in and, and a little bit in the early part of the canyon, but what became really problematic towards the little constriction point was the noise. It actually made communicating almost impossible just between us because it was so loud. We were literally sort of yelling at each other just to communicate anything. So to have a detailed conversation about anything at that point was virtually impossible. It was just too loud. Mm. And were you moving through normally, the way you'd approach each um, obstacle? We were down to that point and we were able to sort of scramble around the edges of things and and move forward fairly safely up until where the water goes through a fairly fairly tight constriction into the final few pools. And I remembered thinking there was a you know there was a there was a point there where we got to and I thought once we commit to this there's no coming backwards to our emergency exit point. Once we've, once we've committed around this corner, there is no way we can come back. And that, that was in my mind, certainly not knowing what was actually around the corner and was it even passable or was it, could we even go down that way? We didn't really know. But the, the thing was that we didn't have any, uh, you know, magic message come to us to say everyone's fine, you can backtrack and get out of there. So we just had to keep ploughing forward thinking, you know, this job is still on um, until it's off. So... Mm. That's really how we had to approach it. And, you know, with a crew of two, uh, we were a little limited with what gear we could take. And back in those days too, talking about the advancements in swift water rescue techniques that are in play these days, you know, this was very much in the infancy of those advancements. So some of the techniques and things that I learnt later, I guess, might have changed some of the approaches of how things were done on that day, but we just, we weren't there yet. And, and actually this job, um, and I know we'll get to it later on, but this job actually did initiate my involvement in some of those discussions to where things have ended up today. And, uh, it's, it's probably, it's a hard path to, to, uh, to have had to have trod to get that progression. You know, it's expensive training, it's dangerous training, and it, and it needs a whole bunch of new gear and techniques that aren't necessarily in the existing rescue manual so it's one of those things that was fairly hard to grapple with as a as a point to go forward and and better the capabilities of the unit with it was definitely problematic i do remember there was a a log jammed down in the water that we could still access fairly safely just before the final constriction point there so the plan that we came up with that wasn't much of a plan (laughs) it was about as good as we could do with what gear that we had uh still going forward was literally for for me to get hard tied into a belay point at that position and and that was not normal so normally you would just go forward to this little rock cutting where you sort of straddle a bit of water flowing you know maybe 10 20 centimeters deep between your legs and not much wider than the the width of your shoulders a nice and easy little scramble down and then you jump into a nice pool well the water going down there was really deep really loud and really fast and and it certainly didn't let you tread where you normally trod to pass through that section and knowing that it was always a risk of getting washed you know knocked over by the water that was any type of uh, slip or fall in there you were just going to go straight into that powerful water there's no stopping you getting washed away then so we only had nine mil ropes thinking that we weren't really configured for any heavy sort of rescue implementation because there's only the two of us so we we were a bit limited with what we had but the idea that we came up with on the day was I would tie into one end of that 60-metre line that we had to do the final waterfall for those that aren't familiar with it. So nine mil ropes usually use doubled up so you can pull them back down from whatever top belay you've used and so you, you abseil on two strands of rope. 
So yeah, so we literally used a single strand of nine mil onto me, and uh, the idea of that was, and and mind you, as I try to explain, it, we were trying to communicate this by screaming it at each other's ears, so we could explain it and both understand it. But the idea of it was that I probably needed my hands to scramble down through the slot, so I couldn't really abseil myself. So therefore, it was configured that he would belay me down, so I could have my hands free. But the only plan that we really had was if I slipped over and got knocked into the fast flowing water, that was just pretty much just going to wash me downstream. And we didn't really know what was around the corners at that point. And as I said to him at the time, was you know if I get knocked over and get washed downstream uh, and we were both very well aware of the fact that that 30 meter waterfall was only around the corner um, and we couldn't really predict what we were going to face when we went around that corner in the uh, in the canyon and if I get washed over um, you're probably going to feel a, a really big jolt which will be me going over the waterfall you're going to have to belay me down as fast as you can because <sighs> now I've seen that waterfall in high water not being in it I've seen it from down the bottom and it's pumping like there's a lot of water going over that waterfall and you know abseiling down it in normal conditions is a beautiful experience but you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to be in there in that thundering state but we weren't too sure whether 60 meters of rope from that position was actually going to be enough to account for that 30 meter drop plus the rope that we were using back to his belay anchor point so we did also have the contingency of me having to cut it off mm. i guess the the benefit of the situation we're in we didn't have time really to think about things too much uh, other than knowing what we were there for and having to having to keep going forward so I think if you if you had time to sit there and think about that as a plan <laughs> I don't know that too many people would go through with it uh, I don't think I would in retrospect either but uh, yeah wow just so we have a better understanding, what time would it normally take just to say an, an intermediate group of say six people, you know, to move through the canyon on a good day in normal flow? Yeah, to move through it, I guess you'd probably be looking at a, a couple of hours. Like it's not, it's not a long canyon. You know, I can't, you're stretching my memory now. I, I used to, we used to time it from car park to car park, and I think it was about an hour and forty-five or something like that. We could knock it over in. the The thing with it was, is it took us a long time to move safely a uh, lot more consideration going into into what we were doing but the other thing that pushed us quickly was the the notion that you know there were potentially people in a lot of trouble just ahead of us and we were also concerned that the water might have still been coming up that was the other consideration we had in there was is this water still rising and because we were moving pretty quickly we really didn't have time to have a reference point and look at something and then re-look at it in you know 10 20 minutes you know again it wasn't much of a plan and I do remember uh saying that he uh after that arrangement of if you feel a big jolt you're going to have to let me go because I'll be probably hanging in the waterfall was don't let it too tight on me because I knew I had a couple of jump-ins coming up and I didn't want to go jumping off something and then have this tight rope just jam me and <laughs> that could have really given me some grief as well. And so it was a really complex sort of thing that he was trying to, that we were trying to come up with for him to do, to him to manage out of sight of me. And you had no verbal comms either. You weren't able to say, hey, let me go or... No, it was so, it was so loud. It just made everything so difficult. And mm. I remember moving forward... And I'm not too sure whether my mind's blanked little bits and pieces of this out. Um, but I remember I remember going forward to a point where 
there's normally a little pad where you would jump off into the second last pool, but it was covered in water, but I knew it would be there somewhere. So I was able to sort of stand on this thing where I'd no- where you would normally jump into the pool from to give you the right angle so you wouldn't hit anything. And I'd done it that many times, I, um, but when I got up there, I looked down and went, oh my God, like normally you're looking at a pool of water with a nice rock shelf to the to its right side. And I remembered looking down there, just looking at all this white churning water and not being able to see the rock shelf where you'd normally get out on. It was just covered in water, it, you know, that you couldn't see what was normally down there. And I'm not too sure whether it was just that muscle memory of repeating what I'd done so many times that I really didn't stop and think about the conditions of the water in the pool, the water dynamics and how aerated the water would be, the flow of the water and all that sort of stuff. I don't know whether it was just because I'd done it so many times that I didn't really see too many other options at that point and, and I certainly dragged down enough rope to, to jump down and did exactly that uh, like I'd done, you know, stacks and stacks of times before but as soon as I landed in the water, I knew it. I knew it wasn't right, and from that point too, that this is that was about when I finally had a little bit of comfort in knowing that we weren't there for nothing because I'd seen the people at, at the abseil point on the exit. That was the first time I'd actually thought, "Thank God we're not in here for nothing," because I could see people that were still stuck there, and and I guess for me too, that fueled that sense of urgency as well. So. You know, there's probably a stack of things going through my mind is what condition are they in? You know, they need help. You could see how high the water was. I could see them sort of trying to stay up out of that main water flow that was just pumping over the edge of the waterfall that's normally quite subtle, really, and committed to it. And and as I said, I couldn't see or communicate with Fitzy at that point in time. So all I could really do was put drag through enough rope f- from his belay just nice and gently so he, he knew I was um, progressing forward and jumped into the water. When I jumped in, I just knew it wasn't right. A, I wasn't floating very well, uh, and I now know that's because the water was all sort of aerated. But the other thing that it was doing is it was really vortexed. It was going around and around and around in circles with me, and yeah, just started started to uh, swim to the side like I'd done stacks and stacks of times to pull myself up on the little rock shelf to then go into the next pool. Um, uh, as I said, you couldn't really see the rock shelf because it was all underwater, but I knew it was there because I've been in there so many times. That um, as I tried to flap my way across to the to the side, it it was just dragging me back in again. So I was going around in circles, and um, it was it was hard going, mm-hmm. and and I was trying pretty hard, and and I you know I, I undoubtedly would have been pretty um, pretty pumped up, I guess. Um, uh, after what what the environment that we're in, you know, <laughs> getting a bit of fatigue going on anyway, I think. But you know, I gave it my best, and and it wasn't good enough. And as I made the edge, it would drag me back in and and spin me around the in the in the whirlpool again. And as that kept going on, there's a few different things that were happening. Um, the first thing was uh, the the amount of rope that was coming down just kept coming because that's what I'd told Fitzy to do. I'd told him to keep paying out rope so I could keep moving forward. Mm. So without knowing where I was, he because he couldn't see me, he was just doing exactly what he was told to do was just keep paying out rope. But that rope was then coming into the pool with me. Like I remember feeling it around me thinking that's the last thing I need is to get tangled up in rope, uh, which I was hard tied into. And, and as I was trying to get around the pool and then as it was getting deeper and deeper I remember if that the feeling of it 
mm. pushing me underwater a little bit on the on the opposite side because of the the rocks sort of a bit overcut and that was making it challenging as well and going around and around and, and the sad part about it is I do remember bumping into things with my legs in the water and uh, I've you know since come to know that was actually the the body of the the person that died in there was actually in the water underneath me and I was bumping into him so um, I didn't know that at the time obviously but uh, you know I could definitely feel something moving in there that I was bumping into and that's what it would have been so yeah, so I made uh, a few more desperate efforts to get myself onto the rock ledge to get myself out of that water, and and every time I got over there, my you know I'd latch my hands into the rock, and it'd just drag me back in. I just wasn't, I couldn't hold on to it. So I, I got to that point where I went right, I'm in trouble because uh, I was starting to, you know, really, I was having trouble, you know, swimming. Literally, I was, I knew I was getting out of breath, and. I think I came to the conclusion of I got to ditch this bag, and mm. yeah, look, the long and the short of it was I I knew I was in desperate trouble, and uh, I was trying to latch myself onto the rocks and uh, get out, and I just couldn't. And um, I tried uh, after I got rid of my backpack, mm. just one last almighty effort to to get to the side and get myself out, and and I remembered sort of feeling got to the edge of the water and got my sort of hands and elbows up on there and just thought I've got to hold myself here for a little while so I can just catch my breath. Um, you know, I, I've no doubt I would have been wondering how many more laps of that pool I had in me because uh, I, I I remember I was, I was you know, I was worried. There's no there's no question about it. I, I, was, I knew I was in trouble. And um, having got back to that rock shelf and just got a little bit of purchase on it that I was able to hold myself for a little bit and – you know, I'd, I have no idea how long I was there for in that position, but the next thing you know, I remembered Fitzy's feet and um, <laughs> I still don't know how he got down there the way he did and, uh, and I don't even know that he does, but, you know, I'd gone from literally shitting myself thinking I don't know whether I'm going to get out of this thing uh, to, you know, seeing the seeing the shoes of my mate, <laughs> which couldn't have been um, – couldn't have been a – a more uh, welcome sight, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, Fitz is a pretty strong bugger, so he's just reached down and reefed me out of there. And, uh, yeah, wow. And I found out later on that's literally what um, what happened to the gentleman that died in there. He was in the group. He'd let everyone else go first because of the limited space, the normal water height that would have been able to accommodate them all at the exit abseil points uh, quite comfortably. But, you know, the, the height of the water just didn't leave much rock perch there at all they lost a lot of gear i found out later on a lot of their gear got washed off i think they had one harness left and some ropes so they were they had uh got a couple of members of their group that weren't injured down and they were tying the harness on the rope and they were pulling it back up wow while still knowing that their friend they would have been in there for you know could have been two hours i don't, I don't know it's um it would have been a long time it really shows how quickly that that flip yeah. happens, you know, and how dynamic the environment and the, the actual work that you did in rescue, how it, everything changes in a second, everything changes in a heartbeat. Yeah. And at one moment you're, you're focused on the people at the end and the fact that they, you know, even from the beginning they might just be around the corner. Yeah, that's the whole job was like that. Yeah, yeah. to then suddenly all you can think about is keeping your nails on the, on the rock platform to stop going back around again. 
Yeah, exactly. Is there any words you can put on what you were thinking at that time? I'd never, ever felt as desperate uh, ever in my entire career as that point in time. Like I I really do remember thinking I don't know that I'm getting out of this. Mm. Um, And and it's probably lucky I didn't know that that was a a person that had drowned that I was bumping into under my legs because it probably – I wonder whether or not it would have made me think, oh, you don't get out of this one. (laughs) And and that could have, uh, you know, made me give up earlier maybe. I don't know. You start to become comfortable with that position of I am the only chance these people have in some of these jobs that you go to because literally there's no one else to call. Like you're who they call when things go wrong. It's not like you've got a number to call when something goes wrong for you. It's sort of, it's a funny position to be in when you're that last call. Thinking back about it, it was probably good to know that we had actually made the right call. Do we all go down to the bottom waterfall to find out what's going on and then come back and go into the canyon if we need to? Or is that time going to cost a life or more? It's actually not all for nothing and we're not in this shitty, dangerous environment for no reason. We're here because people actually need us to be here and that was, I guess, a good feeling. But yeah, it is one of those things where, you know, you go from thinking you're there to help someone to thinking, shit, I don't... I don't know whether I'm getting out of this. And and that all would have happened in the space of 20 seconds probably. Mm. So Fitzy's boots and his, and his big fists come down and drag you up out of that pool. You, you're now yeah, yeah. draped on the edge, dripping, catching your breath. I do remember saying to him, I thought I was fucked. You know, I, I actually thought I was toast. But from that point, you know, we're still in a canyon – we're still wondering whether the water's coming up and the job's still going on. So, you know, I wasn't injured. I was exhausted. Uh, but that's when you've just got to crack on with the task at hand, I guess. And and that's sort of what we did. Mm. Pretty sure, yeah, I went over first and just confirmed what was going on. The lady that was there was injured. She was in a lot of pain. And um, the guy that was there, he basically then told me, my brother's in the pool. Uh, I think that's, you know, literally what I was doing. Like, what, just there, like where I was, and he's like, yeah, just like that. And, you know, that's when I straight away have gone, oh, my God, like there's someone missing right, right at our feet, literally, in, in the water. Uh, that's when we sort of had to think about what's the circumstances of this other element that we're now aware of. And, you know, I had to have that hard discussion with him um, about how long ago it was that he last seen him. Yeah, I can't remember the figure that he said, but it was not a survivable time frame. I had to literally say to him, you know, there's no way he can be alive, mm. uh, which was probably a pretty hard thing to hear from a police rescue guy that's just lobbed up and might have been the only hope. And I remembered thinking a few times there, I didn't know whether there was going to be like a flash flood type water movement come down there at any point. Like I'm just thinking, you know, is that a possibility? How much rain have they actually had in this catchment? What's the water doing? There's all those things running through your mind. Is how urgent is it to get out of here? It's tricky when you're just coming to terms with the fact that you think you nearly drowned yourself and, you know, you're trying to have those discussions with people um, in there. And, and as you've sort of pointed out, you know, like I've, I've gone from thinking, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm here now. I'm going to be able to help these people to, mm. you know, I think I'm just about to drown to then back into, no, we're here now to do this rescue mode. So it's sort of, it's a pretty big um flip change in in a very short space of time. Mm. And it seems to also give a bit of a nod to that compartmentalising or just, okay, I've got to flick 
in, I've got to flick out, I've got to flick on, I've got to flick off. Or I'm just going to not think about that for now because I've got another thing to do right now. If it was any anybody else in any other sphere or environment, you'd go, I need to stop. I just need to ga- gather myself for a bit yeah, here. That's right. There's not too many jobs that you can nearly die at a day at work and then just have to crack on and keep going, is there, I guess? So how did you crack on then? What happened next? The gentleman, we got him down, top belayed him down, and uh, the lady that was there, so I put her injured shoulder on the outside and just um, put a uh, a lanyard to both of us and abseiled us both down together, and then Fitzy came down. So that was sort of how that wrapped up, I guess, and down to the Ambos. And there were obviously stacks of people there by then because a fair bit of time had transpired from when Fitzy and I had made that commitment initially uh, to going into then all of those resources that had turned up in the meantime. And they were probably wondering for this whole period of time, they'd lost contact with you as well. They didn't know what was going on inside either. Yeah, I, th- I think I've had this discussion with my old rescue coordinator at one point about because he he was on that job. Yeah, I did actually wonder that, and and, and above him too, you know, the bosses that were involved. I, I'm sure over the years I gave them all a, a scare or two uh, from some of the stuff that I'd got involved in and and been uncontactable for a period of time for, but no more worthy than that one, I don't think. So the Soddies, the Ambos, they uh, take care of the of the of the party. Yeah, you guys start packing your gear back up, and you start the that slow climb up the stairs to get back up to the conservation hut. Yeah, slow, cold, wet, heavy climb. Yep. Yeah. What time of year was this, by the way? It was a couple of days before Australia Day, so it was in peak summer. Uh, but obviously, we'd had that rain come over and stuff so who knows in the blue mountains it could have been five degrees but i actually don't remember to be honest with you um yeah i don't really remember well let's touch on that you said you know a few times oh it's a bit hazy or it's a bit foggy there and it seems that that's got a connection with with ptsd with post-traumatic stress with you know the ways that people who've who've done jobs like yours um respond um, are you able to talk a bit more about that and what your experience of it is? Yeah, I've learned a lot more about it in the last couple of years since I've uh, started all of the treatments and stuff that I'm I'm doing at the moment about that effect that it has on the brain and sometimes that chronic cortisol and adrenaline um, issues actually physically affect your brain. It's not just this, you know, f- fuzzy psychology type thing. It's actually a chemistry change in your head and one of the things that I've definitely noticed, and I've, I certainly notice it with other people that are in similar situations to myself, that uh, concentration and memory uh, are shot to shreds. I was doing a master's at uni um, a small handful of years ago, and, and towards the end of it, it was really tricky because I had such a short attention span and couldn't remember anything. So <laughs> it made studying at that level really hard, and I'm starting to think, you know, I mustn't be, I mustn't be as smart as I thought I was. I'm not up for this. But, um, you know, it, it definitely takes a toll on your memory and, and cognitive function generally, actually. It's a, it's a bugger of a thing hmm. uh, to how the impacts that it can have and, and how it can affect your life. Just like a flooded canyon isn't to be underestimated, it's definitely linked to it. And uh, the, the majority of people that I've, you know, I'm in circles with these days are suffering some element of that, either memory loss or concentration or both. It's sad, actually, because it's not only traumatic things that you black out, if that's even a term for it, or, or delete. It's, it's, unfortunately, it's, a, it's 
often big swathes of time and, um, you know, there's a lot of good times wrapped up in your life too and mm. a lot of that stuff's pretty foggy too, unfortunately. Do you have a personal story about an incident or rescue during an outdoor trip when something didn't quite go to plan? Maybe you got lost, injured, let down by some gear, preparation or something else. Look, honestly, it can happen to any of us at any time, regardless of how experienced we are. And it's by sharing these stories and tales that we can all learn and help to avoid them in the future. So if that's you, I'd love to hear from you. So please drop me an email to rescued at lotsoffreshair.com. That's rescued with a D. Matt, amazing story, and it doesn't end there because I'm interested to how the days, the weeks after that event, did you start to, to slow down enough? Did you allow yourself to actually start reflecting on that day? Yeah, not really. You know, that job wasn't over that day because there was still a body unaccounted for in the canyon, and, and I knew full well that we were going to be back there tomorrow. So for me, it's, it's pack up, set up. And reconfigure for tomorrow and again just talking about memory I have zero memory of this but apparently when I got home I walked in the door and, and literally collapsed on the floor and babbled out some crying blubber about Nellie dying and then sort of fell asleep on the carpet <laughs> for a little while and uh, so I must have been absolutely cooked you know for me that was literally get home dry as much stuff as I could get ready for tomorrow you know it was another early start and, and as I said to you it's a huge group of people involved at this point in time myself and a different rescue operator the next day and the divers and we went back in uh, the water level was almost the same I don't think it had come down at all I, I could tell the water was still just hammering down through that rock slot and it wasn't going to be safely passable. And here's, I guess, the difference in the job is when there's savable lives mm. at risk, then you push the boundaries. When it's a deceased person you're going in to recover, you, you don't take those risks. We got to that point and I just said, no, nah, it's not worth the, the risk of us going down through that water again like we had the day before. So uh, we actually bailed out. Yeah, we called it a day. My first reaction to hearing that you went back the next day I'm kind of gobsmacked because I'm like, you know, if, if I'd come to a possibility of end of life moment in a work situation, <laughs> surely there was someone else that could have called and given you the day off or something like that. But, but maybe the fact that you were there meant that you were able to then analyse the water the next day and make that call for safety to say, actually, it's the same as yesterday. Yeah. It's not worth it. Yeah, having that knowledge of the actual conditions in there from the day that we were in there probably was important. And and by that time in the unit, I was probably one of the people that was most experienced canyoner. So that's probably another reason why I was kept on that job. And not to mention, I would have liked to have seen it out too. It would have been a lot about me actually wanting to be there as well. You know, if I had been told that I wasn't allowed to go back in, obviously you have to accept that, but I, I would have wanted to see that job out. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, rescue work is a bit like this. It, it drags people in and you don't like letting go of stuff. Did you ever find time to actually start pulling apart what had happened internally inside the canyon for you? So I went back in the, the next day again with another operator, a different rescue operator, and we saw that job through. So that was a three-day long job. And, you know, along with that goes a lot of paperwork and a lot of reports. And there's a fair bit of decompression that you have to do in the sense that you've actually got to write a lot of stuff up. People ask you a lot of questions about it, but 
I don't know that it's one of those things that, well, that I really stopped and thought about that moment or what the consequences of that could have been. I don't know that I really stopped long enough to think about it in any great detail. I, I didn't really ever, until recently, stop and think about what that actually meant. How many years passed between the Empress job and do some, I think you, you called it doing some work on it? Mm. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's nearly you know, 15 plus years later. And there's a whole bucket load of jobs before and after that that I guess, you know, not, not at that level, but in some ways not that different. It's a bit weird, I guess, when that's your line of work and that's the sort of stuff you do, I, you normalise things that are not normal. And that's what I think people in those lines of work do for, you know, it, it really is for their own sake <laughs> that they have to do that and you have to to, to keep going. But... But yeah, you're right. It's it's later now that I can see the effect that it's all had on me that I've stopped and looked back and gone, wow, that wasn't a normal day at work or that job that I was doing wasn't a normal job. That really was something different. I probably wished I had have had that moment a long time ago because I think I probably would have managed myself very differently in acknowledging how how wild that job was or the the jobs that I was going to, how abnormal those things were and could have had an effect on me. And I, I probably wish that I'd mm. come to that realisation uh, a lot younger. But it, it's tricky because, you know, you join the I joined the police force when I was 20 years old and you're in that impressionable young age and it, it moulds you into a particular way of thinking and, you know, a lot of your formative years in that, type of work have spent you know your formative years are spent in that line of work so it's it's quite normal to you can you remember the next time you went into empress after the job i've only been back in there once since and i think that's intentional i I certainly stopped doing it socially and i think i took a group on a training day through there once to show them what had happened i don't know that i ever went back in there again Hmm. I think it's actually in my little things that I want to conquer in the future. <laughs> uh, I think I probably would like to see myself go through that thing again and prove to myself that I can still do it, but I don't know whether I need to either. It certainly took the shine off it and, you know, even as, just as a little thing that I, I had problems with many years later was the sound of helmet grinding on rock and that little sound, you know, when you when your helmet's touch the cliff or whatever and you get that little grinding noise on your on your helmet that was uh you know i didn't know what was going on at the time but it was it was triggering something there that was starting to rattle me they you don't really know what's going Mm -hmm. on at the time but they that's one example of one thing and then a few of those things start to happen and build up and next thing you know you got a whole bunch of these little things that (laughs) are subconsciously reminding your stuff that you'd rather forget yeah and sometimes it's through uh, senses that you might be a bit oblivious to at the time, you know, of your five senses. It could be Absolutely. a smell or, or a sound or, yeah. or a sensation or something like that. The thing that stands out to me, or there's lots that stands out to me about this, is how quickly things change in the bush yeah. and how all of our adventures and our experiences, even if we're just going for a bushwalk, we've, we've done a million times before, through a canyon we've done 50 times before or whatever it is, there's always that that element of the unknown 
Mm. and the element of contingencies and consequence and how can we always be prepared for you know the thing we don't expect you know and that's what that's what adventure is the definition it's like the any activity with an unknown mm. outcome it'd be boring without that right life would be pretty boring without adventure yeah. exactly exactly yeah. so it does it does make me make me reflect on how can we be better at adventurers how can we be better outdoors people and even in places that you you're very familiar with and I got to the point where I'd, I'd done the same thing 30 times over and probably stopped thinking laterally about the activity or the problem at hand or what I was trying to conquer. It's just, it was just programmed into me as this is what – I've done this stacks of times before. This is what I do. Whereas if you took somebody green there, they'd probably look at it from one step back and go, okay, well, that's, some, that's one way of doing it, but what about this or this or this? And I think sometimes when you're under the pressure that you can stop thinking that way, it takes um, a bit of effort, I think, to to make sure that you stop and think about it rather than just doing what you're programmed to do or, you know, what you'd seen other people do or whatever. There is, uh, there's always that potential of you know, one slippery rock or a... Uh, one wrong turn or one flat battery or one something of something that you are relying on mm. not not working out for you and you're in a you're in a whole new world it's a different day for you when that that stuff happens Matt thank you so much for taking us into empress and for for letting us understand or try to understand some of what was going on that day for you and for Fitzy and for those people um, thank you for just your humility and your ability to and, and willingness to to talk about it. Yeah, a lot of people wouldn't be wouldn't be willing to do that. Yeah, it sort of helps me too. You know, I think sometimes it's uh, it's good to get some of these things off your chest that you've held way too tight for too long. And sometimes it's actually good to talk about it, particularly if someone can take something away from it. And there's little hidden hidden things in lots of these stories that I wouldn't even be aware of that someone will pick something up from or. You know, even if they're critical about something that's happened, at least that way they're thinking about the situation or or what could be done differently or what could be done better or, you know, as we always say, if this helps one person somewhere down the track, it's all worth it. It certainly is. Before I wrap it up, is there anything else you wanted to add or anything? Make sure you check the weather. Um. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You know, one thing changes. Yeah. You know, the rain came quickly and it changed the conditions. And for you, the change happened when you went from, oh, yeah, they're just around the corner to, yeah. well, hang on, suddenly I'm I'm having to change everything about everything I believe right at this split second. Yeah, right at that moment, yeah. There's always that little uh, element of the unknowns and sometimes you can err on the side of it'll work out fine or sometimes you can err on the side of caution and take a different approach to whatever whatever it is that you're going to do. And I don't like people thinking that, you know, you've got to over uh, analyze things to the point where you just can't do anything. That's going to take the fun out of everything and, and the adventure out of things. And what I hope people don't take away from the messaging is that it's not about stopping you enjoying yourself and having fun. It's just make sure you really think about it, prepare for it, enjoy it. Go out and give it a nudge. Give it a nudge. Get into it. Yeah, that's right. But uh, yeah, just make sure you do your homework. Well, Matt, where can people hear your voice more? Where can they learn more about the things that you're, you're doing these days? They're probably, they're probably sick of it after all of this, but I've got a podcast focused on emergency services, mental health, which is called the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. 
there's certainly um, tales of the emergency services and it's associated with a big walk that we're doing in the not too distant future actually so the heart to heart walk 2023 is going to kick off on the 1st of July from Mount or Lambert Centre of Australia out near Fink and going all the way into Canberra. I'm contactable on Instagram and there's a LinkedIn contact there as well. And again, I recommend everyone, if you haven't listened to episode one of this podcast, which is the first one with with Matt here, um, he goes into a lot of detail about, about what the Heart to Heart Walk project is. Yeah, and his podcast is an absolute cracker. So, Go to your podcast app of choice and look up the Heart to Heart Walk podcast. And again, Matt, you, Brian, you're an absolute gentleman. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. The Rescued podcast is produced on the unceded lands of the Gundungurra and Darug people of the Blue Mountains of New South Wales. I pay my respects to Elders past and present and acknowledge their enduring connection to and care for country. Special thanks to our sponsors, Paddy Pallon, and to Jen Brown for production support. This has been a Lots of Fresh Air production.